0: When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. Now am I... Am I, Am I correct here? John 13, 18, sorry, I've I've gone ahead, sorry. Um, So not starting at 31, but starting at 18. Apologies. So Jesus starts by saying, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times.
1: Uh, I'm with you for four weeks at the moment uh, doing this short series on an unexpected Jesus. Last week we saw Jesus is a master who serves us, uh, which sounds back to front, and we saw what that means. Uh, This week I've called it a God who chooses us. A God who chooses us. And uh, I'd like to say from the outset that um, I expect that today what I say is going to upset and offend some of you. Um, either by the end of today, you'll think Jesus isn't fair, or you'll think the Bible says God is so powerful that my choices don't matter. So I reckon by the end of today, some of you are going to be upset and offended by what I have to say. I hope that's got your attention. Um, what, what I want us to do today is wrestle with one of those. Uh, most foundational and profound theological convictions that is the key to Christian assurance. Uh, And that's my hope for this morning. Okay, so you'll see what I want to cover there. Uh, There's three main points and a bunch of questions for us to reflect on. Firstly, a train wreck dinner party. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. You know, when something's a train wreck uh, and the event itself, you just think there's nothing good about it. It's all from one disaster to another. Um, I wonder if you've ever been to a dinner party like that. Um, I thought I'd tell you about some of the ones that I have been to. You know, when someone says something or does something that just completely ruins the night. And these are all experiences and examples of the things that I've done to muck things up. So I turned up once to a dinner party where everyone else was in black tie and I was in my best pair of jeans because no one had told me that they changed the dress code after they sent the invitations out. What sort of person does that? Uh, So that was a little bit awkward. Then there was a dinner party where we'd invited over a whole bunch of people and I had carefully somehow managed to bake two pies in the oven. And as I got them out, I dropped them. Um, Now, the thing is, no one saw. And in the end, you cut pies up, so we just sort of scooped it up and served it anyway. But um, that might make you somewhat reluctant to accept any dinner invitations from us. (laughs) then, of course, there's a time where someone says something that's just completely out of place. You know, they drop the clangor and then there's just awkward silence. Uh, I'm not going to tell you about the time I did that. But the dinner party that Jesus has been at so far has been, in many ways, an unmitigated disaster. Uh, there's that foot washing incident that we saw last week. You know, that cringing entire time where the Jesus is washing his servant's feet and no one offers to take over for him. It gets worse, though. Point two, what Jesus says will happen tonight. Uh, The reading that Stephen brought to us is effectively in two parts, and I want to focus on each of them just for a moment or two. The first part is about what Jesus says Judas will do, and the second part is what Jesus says Peter will do, uh, two of his 12, his most trusted disciples. Well, firstly, what Jesus says Judas will do, this is in verses 18 through 30. Now, right back at the start of John, uh, John 13, uh, we saw that John told us readers what would happen. I printed the passage there for you on the top of your handout. Uh, John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Uh, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And actually, verse 2, which isn't there, continues... Uh, verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas to portray Jesus. So we who are reading John's gospel, we know that Jesus is going to be betrayed. But in verse 18 of chapter 13, Jesus tells his disciples. Verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Jesus tells his disciples now that he's going to be betrayed and then in verse 21, he makes it very explicit. Verse 21, after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit, testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. And this is where things get particularly awkward because not surprisingly, they start looking around. One of us? Who is it who will betray Jesus? Jesus replies in verse 26, uh, it's Judas. Uh, But even now, in keeping with the theme of the evening, uh, the other 11 still don't understand what's going on. Uh, As that paragraph concludes, you see that they think that Judas, when he leaves, it's not to betray Jesus. They think Judas is going off to do some errands that Jesus has sent him on. Why can't they see it? Why don't they understand? Why don't they intervene, stop Judas and save Jesus? Well, it doesn't really matter. Because in the end, what we're being warned is against looking down on Judas to think that we'd be better than him. Because we're going to see in just a moment that all the other disciples in their own way and no more deserving of Jesus' love than Judas is. Uh, We're going to come to that in just a moment, but you'll see I've printed there on your handout, for discussion, can a Christian be possessed by the devil? I don't particularly want to spend a lot of time on this, but the way in which the passage unfolds with this sense that as Judas takes the bread, the devil enters into him, uh, sometimes for Christians, causes them to wonder, is that something that could happen to me? And perhaps if you've, Uh, ever seen or encountered or been made aware of things like exorcisms and so on, that is the casting of demons out of Christians, uh, I can understand that this is a question that you might like to reflect on. Without spending a lot of time on it today, I do want to say that I don't think that the devil can displace the Holy Spirit whom Jesus makes very clear lives in everyone who is a believer. And yet at the same time, I do imagine that there are scenarios where Christians can be foolish enough to invite Satan in. So in the end, it really depends on why you're asking the question, can a disciple be possessed by the devil? Please don't ever construct a theology that enables you to tempt fate, to flirt with the devil all the while expecting that Jesus will somehow miraculously intervene we'll see that idea actually is played out in the rest of the passage. If you'd like to chat more about that, come and talk with me afterwards. It's not a main idea here, but I am conscious that for some of us, it is one of the things that we've reflected on. So secondly then, what Jesus says Peter will do. Jesus has predicted what Judas will do, and in fact, Judas goes off to do that. What Jesus says Peter will do. This is in verses 31 through 38. And I'll just get you to focus in at this point uh, on verses 36 to 38. Because Jesus has said that he's about to leave. To which Simon Peter asks him, Lord, where are you going? To which Jesus replies, where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will follow later. So Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, you'll, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Peter, not surprisingly, is utterly shocked by the way in which this dinner party has been unfolding. And so, when he hears Jesus say, I'm going to leave you and you can't come with me, Peter loudly insists that even if no one else will follow Jesus, he will. But cuttingly, Jesus replies, Tonight, you're going to disown me. Not once, not twice but on three separate occasions. What we're being told here is that Judas betrays Jesus and Peter will abandon him. For in the end, both are culpable. Neither is commended. None is better than each other. And the point Jesus is making in a way that we can't miss it is pretty blunt. He's saying that if we'd been there, we'd have done the same thing. Now, before we try and unpick that theme, uh, let's focus for a moment on the one thing that the disciples should have understood about this night. Now, this is important because consistently we've been told they don't understand what's going on and from the way in which they act. They clearly don't really get it. But the one thing they should have understood is what Jesus says in verses 34 and 35. So, focus in there, verse 34... Jesus says, A new command I give you love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Of all the things the disciples don't understand that come from Jesus' mouth, this much is pretty clear. This much they're meant to get. Jesus says it several times. In fact, three times he says it in two verses love one another. A couple of things to say about this. Firstly, it's not really a new command. It's not really a new command. You know that because Jesus has just commanded them to wash each other's feet in imitation of his love for them. That's what we saw last week. So in that sense, it's not a new command, but rather secondly, what is new is the effect of them loving each other. Jesus says, if you love one another, then others will know that you are my disciples. So whereas last week when we looked at the foot-washing episode and that focused on service as obedience to Jesus, service as doing his command, this week the focus is on love as a witness to others. Jesus is very clear. Others will see how the disciples love each other and presumably they'll want to be a part of that. Because in the end, Jesus is on about gathering more and more disciples, not just the 12 who are in that room with him this night. You see that, actually, from back in chapter 10. So I'm going to ask you just to flip back with me a couple of pages to John chapter 10 and verse 16. John chapter 10, verse 16. This is in the middle of a terrific section where Jesus is describing how he is the good shepherd. Verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. I think this is as good a suggestion as anywhere in John's gospel of how Jesus is on about making more and more disciples. And one of the ways he's saying back in John chapter 13, one of the ways in which that happens is that others will see the way in which his disciples love each other and they'll want to be part of that as well. Well, for just a moment, uh, the discussion question there is, how are the disciples to love each other? How are the disciples to love each other? And for just a couple of minutes, I want to tackle one particular issue that's often debated in Christian circles. Uh, you'll have heard a variation of this if you've been a Christian for any length of time. It goes something like this, uh, can we show love without words? Can our actions be a sufficient witness to the world around us? Now, at one level, it's a compelling argument If we just look to quietly show the love of Christ to the world around us, well, we avoid the risk of being labelled preachy. Uh, Everyone can love, everyone can show love, even if they're not confident to speak of their faith. And of course, if we're committed to just quietly showing love to those around us but never saying anything about it, well, we're unlikely to ever be accused of being intolerant or judgmental. Oftentimes, people who advocate this particular argument will quote Francis of Assisi, who I've printed there for you on your handout. Francis of Assisi, who is famously recorded as saying, preach the gospel at all times, and just use words if necessary. That is the idea in that, the idea is that the conduct of your life is a sufficient preaching of the gospel, and you don't really need to say anything about it. Well, I'd like to respond to that by saying that actions without words aren't enough. I have two reasons. The first is that in 21st century Adelaide, from the outside, lots of groups look like they love each other. From the outside, lots of groups look like they they love each other, not just Christian groups. So I can't see how us loving each other without words will ever enable someone to conclude, oh yeah, you Christians, you love each other because you're disciples of Jesus. That's why you're doing it. How will they make that conclusion? If they're looking from the outside at a whole bunch of groups who appear to love each other. And the second reason why actions without words aren't enough is because in the end, Christian love is so countercultural that it must be explained. Christian love is so countercultural that it has to be explained. It can't just be inferred. Now this is nothing new actually. Right from the very beginning Christians and their conduct has been misinterpreted. The best example is actually of the thing that we've just done earlier, the Lord's Supper. Did you know that in uh, the first uh, few years after Jesus' death and resurrection, when the disciples started celebrating the Lord's Supper as Jesus commanded them to, uh, to the surrounding world, particularly to the Romans, uh, they looked on the Christians uh, who were doing this little ceremony and uh, they called them their love feasts uh, and they accused them of cannibalism because they ate the body of Jesus and they drank his blood. Uh, Ever since the beginning... Christians have been misinterpreted. So if you think about foot washing from last week, that example of love that Jesus commanded us to uh, practice uh, in our culturally appropriate context today, do you think that anyone watching Christians wash each other's feet would work out that the reason they were doing it is because Jesus first washed ours? How would they know? unless we use words to tell them. Worst of all, I think that most outsiders assume that we do what we do because we're trying to earn favour or merit from God. You know, outsiders look at Christians and they see all the things that we do. We spend so much time at church, we give money, we help the poor and the needy. I think they... Assume that we're doing that because we are trying to earn God's favor. Try to even up the ledger to offset all the things that we know that we're inadequate at. And I think that because actually that's how most people live. We don't live in a time where you get anything for free. It has to be earned. So surely an outsider looking at a Christian community, that will be their assumption. We live exactly the same. It's just that we're trying to please God, not just each other. In the end, uh, the way in which love is defined in our world is about self-satisfaction. That is, you love others uh, because in so doing, it actually repays to you or rebounds to you. Whereas, of course, Christian love is always built on self-sacrifice and the idea that we give to others even if there is no obvious benefit to ourselves. Can I say at this point, if you're someone who's here who's not a disciple, uh, then actually many here in this room are disciples uh, because of the way in which Christians have loved them and welcomed them and accepted them. And that's of course not the only reason, but that's a large part of the reason why they first got involved in a church like this. That's what keeps them coming. I thought at this point actually about asking people to put up their hands. If that had been part of your story, that is, what first interested you about Jesus was the love shown to you by other Christians. And I know that's not everyone's case but I'm struck by how frequently I hear that testimony. So can I say that if you're someone here who's not a believer, not a disciple, then yes, I realise this church is not perfect, but this is a place where every member seeks to love one another that you might see what it is to be a disciple of Christ. Well, Uh, Let me come then to point three and the three big questions for us, which I think this passage poses for us. Uh, Let me run through them. Uh, The first one very briefly. Firstly, who sent Jesus? Now, you might be wondering why that's a big question, because I actually haven't drawn any attention to it so far. But you might have noticed back in both verse 20 and in verses 31 and 32 that in each case, Jesus talks about someone else, someone who stands behind him. Someone who's even greater than he is? And I actually haven't addressed that at all, mostly because it's such an important question that we'll devote all of next week's talk to that particular idea. Someone else has sent Jesus. Who is that person? And how does that help us to make sense of this passage? We'll come back to that next week. Instead, I want to deal with the the two things that I said at the start might very well upset and offend you. So here we go. Second question How is it fair for Jesus to choose some, but not others? How is it fair for Jesus to choose some, but not others? I ask that question because one of the things that sticks out to us from this passage is that Jesus chooses Peter, but not Judas. It's important because ultimately, both are culpable, none are commended, neither is better than each other one betrays the other abandons and yet Jesus chooses Peter and Jesus won't even let go of Peter even after Peter lets him down so badly is this implying that Jesus is so in control that our choices are irrelevant and if he is how is that possibly fair Did Judas even have a choice when verse 18 says that what he does is to fulfill scripture? Was he always destined to do what he did and therefore cannot be held to account? Well, let me say two things about this. Uh, Firstly, uh, the Bible is very clear that both God is fully sovereign, fully in control, and that we are completely responsible for our actions. The Bible is very clear that God is fully sovereign and that we are completely responsible for our actions. And what the Bible does is that it insists both things are true without ever trying to fully explain how both can be held together. If you stop and think for a moment, uh, that's very clear from the way in which the Bible story has unfolded. Right back at the start, when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers... Well, actually, we discover at the end that God was still in control because in so doing, by being sold into slavery in Egypt, actually uh, his family is unable to survive the famine that rocks the whole land. Uh, When you see Pharaoh continuing to refuse to let the Israelites go and in so doing, the plagues are brought down on Egypt, it's very clear that Pharaoh is the one who's making the decision And yet God is still completely sovereign over the whole matter. But the most clear example of God being fully sovereign and us also being totally responsible is when you think of the cross itself. Just reflect for a moment. If we're not fully responsible, there is no sin that needs to be atoned for. On the other hand, if God is not fully sovereign, then the cross was a surprise. Unexpected even to him. In the end, the Bible is very clear. God is both fully sovereign and we're fully responsible. And though we struggle to put that together because in many ways it's almost impossible to do, nevertheless the Bible insists on both. And so the point to take in the end is that If God's choice of us were based on fairness, then none of us would be chosen. Because as we've seen in this story, in Judas and Peter, all of us are culpable. None is commended. No one is better than anyone else. You see, Judas represents the worst of us and Peter represents the best of us. But together, they show that all of us will let Jesus down which is the very picture of grace grace says that despite our failures Jesus doesn't give up on us grace says that our only hope is that God chooses us because if our hope is that we choose him well we don't and we won't the only way in which you can be saved in the end is if God chooses you. And the only reason the Bible says that God chooses us is that he loves us. I know in my own life that I am free to bestow my love on whomever I want If I choose to show my love to anyone when no one deserves it, that doesn't make me unfair. That just makes me very generous. So, the third and final question then how can I be sure that Jesus has chosen me? Which is really asking how can I be confident that I will go the distance in the Christian life? especially when, sadly, we see so many around us who stumble and fall? Well, part of it depends on why you're asking. If you're asking because you want to flirt with temptation or justify ungodliness, that's one reason. Or are you asking because you're just all too painfully aware of your own inadequacies, of your own failings, of all the times in which you've let Jesus down? What John 13 tells us is that the only way to be sure that Jesus has chosen you, the only way to be sure that Jesus loves you is not because of anything you do. It's because Jesus says he has chosen you and because Jesus says that he loves you. And the only way to know that Jesus loves you is to be reminded that he says that he does and that he is good for his word. He's already laid down his life as a demonstration of that love. You can be sure that Jesus has chosen you not because of anything you do or feel. Not because of anything you do. Uh, It is tempting, I think, in some ways to read John 13 and 34 and 35, that new command that he gives, and to think, if I love others, then I'll know that I'm Jesus' disciple. I hope you can see that that's just you trying to save yourself. And in that, there is no assurance because, in the end, none of us are commendable. We will all let Jesus down. The only way you can be sure that Jesus has chosen you is not because of anything you feel. Because again, there's no assurance there when our feelings, though real, are variable and therefore not trustworthy at times. The only way you can be sure that Jesus has chosen you is if he says he has. The only way you can be certain that he loves you is if he says that he loves you and he backs up his actions with his words. As in every relationship, actually, someone's love for you is not about your conduct. It's always about theirs. You cannot order someone to love you. You cannot compel someone to love you. I don't know if you've ever tried. It's never successful. It's up to them in the end to say that they love you and to tell them that they love you, and to back up their actions with words. Uh, That's in the end what it means to live by grace and not by works. Uh, That's what it means to live by faith, looking forward, not by sight, having it all answered here and now. And that's why in the end, God's choice is our only comfort. Because it says to us that our salvation rests on Him, not on our failings or our inadequacies or our best efforts. Well, let me finish then by saying, if you are a disciple, I speak particularly to the members of this church, if you are a disciple, if you have any doubt that you have been chosen by Jesus, then make sure you get chosen today. What do I mean by that? Well, come with me one last time in John, just back to chapter 6, and verses 37 through 40. John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. Here's what Jesus says He has come to do. Verse 37, John chapter 6. Look at some of the words there that Jesus says. Come to him, look to the son, believe in him. This is a passage not to tie us up in philosophical conundrums. This is a passage to reassure us of his love, which he says he shows us and he backs up by his actions. I'm gonna stop at that point and I tried to think about what's the best way to leave ringing in your ears the conviction that the only way in which you know you're chosen is that Jesus says that he loves you and that he backs up his actions in his words. So here's what I thought I'd do. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that it's been written for us and for our salvation. We thank you for your Son, that he was sent to us to bring all who look to him home. And we pray that in this week ahead, we might trust in his promises, for they never fail. Amen.